get into our sermon this morning. What do you delight in? What brings you joy? Um, there's a temptation culturally to not do delight very well, to either live without it, to live without that kind of like, we're just so busy and we're getting by and there's no time and there's no energy for things that really excite you, or to accept shallow substitutes, um, to accept things that they're good enough to get me through, right? They're fun maybe, they're distracting maybe, they're entertaining maybe, but they're not life-giving and delightful. And uh, earlier this summer, on a different sermon, on a different psalm, as we got to the end of it, I started talking about delight. And uh, it wasn't a planned part of my sermon, and I finished my sermon, and I got up to do the benediction, and I said a few more things about delight because I just felt like I needed to, and it fit. And afterwards, it got me thinking that, actually, there's a, probably a need for a whole sermon, at least, on this subject, because it's one of the things we don't talk about very often at all, and certainly not very often in church. And I don't know why, because our Father, our Heavenly Father, is a God of delight. He is. And, and we maybe don't picture him that way, and we maybe don't think about our relationship with him in that way very often, but we should. Um, he delights in us. He delights in his creation. G.K. Chesterton is an author that I really like, and uh, he talks about the sunrise. And he says, he, he writes about the sunrise, he says, I'm convinced that the sun gets up every morning because God tells it to. Because God is like a child who each morning, not in the sense that God is not mature or wise, but in the sense that a child can repeat something and take joy in it again and again and again. They learn something new, and they're like, do it again, do it again. And you're the parent, you're sitting there, it's like the 15th time, and you're, I didn't want to do it again. No, 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 please do it again. And God is so full of joy that every morning he says to the son, do it again, right? Do it again. It's amazing. Do it again. Um, and... And there is a witness in Scripture and a call in Scripture for us to grow into delighting in the Lord. For one of the answers, not the only one, God has given us many sources of delight, but for one of the answers to the question, what do you delight in, what brings you joy, to be God, um, which again, probably isn't something we think about very often. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do that from Psalm 63. Now, there's a number of ways to talk about and think about delight. One of the things you can talk about is just, what do you really look forward to? What excites you? What, when you're doing it, are you fully like focused on and enjoying that thing? And when you're done doing that thing or being with that person or whatever the case may be, you know you've been filled up, right? That's one of the ways to find out what you delight in. There's another really important way, and it comes up right at the very beginning of Psalm 63. So we're going to read this psalm together, and then we're going to talk through it and through delight and through joy. And so, as is our tradition, as we do here every morning, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the Word. We do this to honor the Word of God. It's the best thing you're going to hear from me today, and for you to participate in this as well. So Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. 
Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Guide us this morning in learning and in delighting in you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I said there's a couple ways to think about what you delight in. One is to think through the things and the people and the activities that, that bring you that kind of enjoyment and focus. Um, there's another one, and it comes up, we read at the beginning of Psalm 63, before verse 1, we read a Psalm of David when he was in the desert or in the wilderness of Judah. And earlier this summer, I preached on Psalm 51, and we spent a little bit of time talking about that, those couple words that come before the actual poem, before the actual song of worship, because they're important. There's not too many psalms, it's slightly less than 10%, I think, that tell us when they were composed. When they do, it's important. And this one was composed when David is running through the wilderness of Judah, fleeing from his son who tried to take over his kingdom. So David had many children. One of them, his, one of his sons was named Absalom. And Absalom was David's beautiful son. He's described as having inc- amazing hair, this just long, incredible hair that all of the women in the kingdom swooned over. And, um, and he's not a very nice guy, but he's politically ambitious. And so what he decides to do is he decides that for, for four years, okay, so this is not a short-term commitment we're talking about here, for four years, he stations himself every morning at the gates of Jerusalem. And the gates in the ancient cities are one of the places you can go to do business, um, to get mediation, to kind of figure stuff out and get help and be judged. But in, in the city of Jerusalem, you're supposed to go to the palace to do those things. Um, if they're serious enough. If they're not serious enough, then you take care of them at the gate. And so Absalom sits himself down at the gate, and as people come into the city to see the king, he says to them, oh, the king, you know, he's way too busy. He's got way too much going on. Let me help you. And for four years, he mediates and judges for the people, taking over the king's job. And the people love it. And of course, he's doing it with with the goal of winning the hearts of the people. So you know he's giving them what they want. And after four years, he's finally won enough popular support that he heads off to Hebron with a number of the generals and commanders of the army and a number of the priests and high priests from the temple and lots of people, like a huge crowd, to crown himself king. Because that's what you do in the city of Hebron. And so he goes off to Hebron, he crowns himself king, and then they march on Jerusalem. He's going to take over from his father. And King David finds this out so late in the day that he has to flee the city of Jerusalem with no preparation, with very little support. He's, he's running for his life. And he runs with the attitude. He has a really amazing attitude. He's learned the lesson of Saul. 
Saul was the king before David, and the Lord came to him and said, your kingship is over, and Saul said, no way, I'm going to hang on to this as long as I can, and it's not a pretty story. And David, is, David flees from Jerusalem saying to the people who are going with him, look, if God still wants me to be king, then he'll bring me back in triumph. And if God doesn't want me to be king, if this is the sign that my kingship is over, then there's no point in fighting it. I might as well just go. Um, but he's still running for his life through the wilderness, and, and it's described as a desperate flight. Um, they don't have enough supplies. They don't have enough food and water. He keeps turning people back, telling them, you can't come with me. Like, we, we, don't, we can't actually handle more people. You have to leave. And they finally make it to the River Jordan, and they're, they're, they're so thirsty. Like, they're just so ready for water. And this is the context of this psalm. It's as he flees. It's before they've got to the River Jordan where they finally get some provisions. Um, it's before they've figured anything out. The end of the story, David is returned in triumph. He does defeat the rebellion of Absalom, but they don't know any of that yet. They don't know how this is going to go. They don't know how they're going to make it. And you can imagine, I hope, that kind of a situation and how hard that would be and how awful that would be. Hopefully you've never been in that kind of situation where you don't know if you're going to make it to water or not. Um, but I don't think it would be very fun. And in those moments, in the moments of your life where things are not going as planned, when in fact they're going awful, when you're, and you know, we, not, we probably haven't been in a situation where that's about food and water, but I think we've all been in a situation where like, it, life is just overwhelming. And there's just no space. You're exhausted. You're, you're on the edge of hopeless. Um, in those moments, what you long for tells you something about what you delight in. I'm reading The Hobbit with my kids right now, and if you've never read that, it's a story about a hobbit who has no desire for adventure, who kind of gets hoodwinked into going on an adventure, and it's awful and it's hard, and you can hardly read a chapter of the book without J.R.R. Tolkien telling you that Bilbo, in this difficult situation, imagined his fireplace and his comfortable chair and his warm hobbit hole, and his larder full of food, right? And my kids love it because every chapter we get to where, where Bilbo is thinking like, oh, I wish I was at home, and they laugh. But it's because in the story, that's what he delights in. He delights in that quiet life, in the enjoyment of his comfortable, cozy, warm home space, right? Um, if you think about the times in your life when you're in that kind of like desperate situation, what is it you long for? I think it's very telling that in that flight, David writes about thirsting for God. And he uses all of the imagery and all of the experience that he's going through to tell us about this. Because what does he say? He says, my soul thirsts for you. David is writing this when he knows what thirst means. He says, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's where he is. He's in the dry and weary land where there is no water. And what does he long for? He longs for God. He's thinking, as any of us would be in this circumstances, of food. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of feasts. But he's not talking about the rich feast of food that I'm sure he was also longing for. He's talking about entering the presence of God. Because in God he delights. David, at this point in his life, and this is long in his journey, let's keep that in mind, has learned to delight in the Lord. The temptation when we read a psalm like this is to see the gap between where David's at 
in delighting in and thirsting for the Lord and how he can express that deep soul's desire. And we look at where he is and we look at where we are and we don't share that and we feel that. But that's not the point. The point of a psalm like this is not for you to feel guilty or ashamed that you're not there yet. The point is for it to call you forward, to elicit that desire in you to think, I want to be like that. I want to be like David. I want to walk that journey to the point where even when everything in my life is falling apart, and that's where David is right now, even when everything in my life is falling apart, I say, Lord, what I want is you. Right? That's a vision of the end of the journey. So how do we get there? I want to do three things today. I want to walk quickly through this psalm to give us just some more of the picture that David is giving us. We're going to do that in three sections. Verses 1 to 4 is God my desire. Verses 5 to 8 is God my delight. And verses 9 to 11 is God my defense. And then once we've walked through that to get a deeper idea of the picture that David is giving us here, then we're going to talk about delight and what it means to grow in delight and how that actually works. And then lastly, we're going to pray because we each need a little bit of time to think about the questions that are being asked of us by this psalm. So we start in verses 1 to 4. Oh God, you are my God. Uh, this is the key. This is the line from which everything else follows. This is true in so many of the Psalms. I said the same thing last week from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and everything else follows that. Oh God, you are my God. Um, you are the one I worship. You are the one I follow. You are the one I want to be with. You are the one who leads me, and so on and so forth. You're my highest ambition. When you say, oh God, you are my God, all of those things are wrapped up in that saying. We, we tend to use the word God very lightly and very easily. Um, but as a word of worship, to say that something is your God is another way of saying that it's the most important thing. It's the highest Thing. He's the highest person, the most important person, the most important relationship, that his word matters more than anything else, and so on and so forth. And so, the next line follows, earnestly, I seek you. If a God is really your God, then earnest seeking is part of saying that. This is where language and action have to line up. We can say, of lots of different, we can say lots of different things, but if they're actually true, if we actually live them out, then action follows. So, you're my God, earnestly I seek you. And now he's going to tell us what that means. What does earnest seeking look like? My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's what it looks like. It looks like a man dying of thirst looking for water um, to seek God earnestly. And he tells us a little bit about how he got there. Verse 2. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Verse 3, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. David is sharing the experiences that have led him to this position. This is another thing we often do in the Christian life, and we do this in church. We know where we ought to be, and we think somehow that we can just think and will ourselves into that position. Oh, I know I ought to delight in the Lord, so I'm just going to push really hard with my mind and I'll get there. But that's not at all how the scriptures witness to us. David gets there through experience, through revelation. You begin knowing things in your head. And lots of times what I'm doing on a Sunday morning in preaching is, is trying to help things get into your head. 
So you may have never thought about God as a God of delight until I said that this morning. And if you don't think about God as a God of delight, then there's very little opportunity for that to sink in any deeper. But no amount of me saying this to you and no amount of you saying, yes, I believe it, yes, I believe it, can substitute the revelation of God that sinks that into your heart. And so David, that's what he's talking about here. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've been in your presence. I've seen your power and your glory. It's the same thing that we, we, I read from Luke, where he's in the synagogue and he heals the crippled woman. And by the end of that story, what are we told? That all the people delighted in the things that he is doing because they've seen it. We gotta, we've got to see it too. And if you haven't, the start of the journey is to seek that revelation of God, to ask to see him and to know his power and his glory, right? And then David can say, because your love is better than life. He knows the love of God. He's seen the grace of God. The events here are after the whole David and Bathsheba thing. He's seen who God is. He knows that his love truly is better than life, and so he can live accordingly. If you aren't there this morning, you can't pretend to be there, but you can ask God to take you there. Right? That's part of the journey. And then this concludes with praise. I will praise you as long as I live, the first four verses, not the whole psalm. And in your name I will lift up my hands. This is the measure of David's desire, and it leads right into the measure of his delight in verses 5 to 8. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. There's this picture of abundance, the abundance of God. On my bed, I think of you through the night, through the watches of the night. He's talking about, now I've experienced this too over other things that I delight in. When you're really excited about something the next day, what do you do in the night, right? You can't get it out of your head. This is a kid at Christmas, right? And if you, I hope you remember being a kid at Christmas when you couldn't sleep because of your excitement over what was gonna happen the next day, right? This is the experience of delight. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. There's this picture being offered of like God offering shelter and David singing and dancing in that place, recognizing that presence and work of God and delighting in it and clinging to God. My soul clings to you. And through it all, the work of God is still here because it's God who brings the shelter of his wings. It's God whose right hand upholds David. It's God who provides the rich feast, right? In all of these things, it's delighting in the work that God is really doing. David knows who the Lord is, and he knows he's going to come through again. And that's where the last three verses come in. And these are statements of faith at this point in David's story, because David's fleeing right now. But what he says is, they who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. He's declaring in faith that God will continue to be good, and God will continue to take care of him. And when God does that, he gets to go back to the beginning. I've seen you. I've seen your power and your glory. I know your love is better than life and I can sing and I can rejoice and I can be satisfied with all that you've done, right? And so we've got this amazing picture. How do we get there? Now, there's a part of me that I need to say, I'm still very early on this journey myself. 
So in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about growing in faith. We did Psalm 16, I think, and we talked about growing in trusting God. And I still have lots to learn about trusting God, trusting God but I, I do think that's a lesson that God has been teaching me since the very beginning of my walk with Him as a teenager. Um, I got lots to go, but I've learned quite a bit along the way. Last week, I talked about rest from Psalm 23, and I was able to share with you how, what was it now, a year and a bit ago, that kind of journey into recognizing what rest is and learning some of that. When it comes to delight, I feel like this is an area that I've, I'm called into, but I'm very early. And so I want to talk to you about what I think is going on and how I think this works, um, but I can't do so with the same level of experience that I have in some of the other sermons we've been doing this summer. Uh, so that's your word of warning. So I'm relying on other people here. I'm relying on wise individuals who've gone before me. So one thing to say is to recognize what we've already been talking about, that this is a journey, that it's okay if you're not there yet, that it relies on real experience of God and the real revelation of who God is. And that if you're not there yet where you've seen those things and you've experienced God in those ways, that's where you start, okay? That's where you begin. But I do think most of us, in some degree, have some of that already, whether we recognize it or not. Especially if you are already a believer, if you're already someone who has put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've been walking with Him, I'm willing to bet that you have experienced some of the delight in the Lord. Because most of us, especially early on in our faith journeys, we do. We come to Jesus and we invite Him into our life and we submit to Him and we surrender to Him, we ask forgiveness from Him and we, we follow Him as our Lord. And, and it's an incredible journey especially at the beginning, and we experience some of that new joy. Um, but that seems to wear off, and then most of us don't know what to do anymore. And I've, I've found C.S. Lewis to be really helpful here. He writes an essay called On Riding Bicycles, which is not maybe the subject you thought I was about to bring up. But he's, he's writing it to talk about joy, and he's, he's developing an analogy. And what he says is he says, look, remember riding, learning how to ride a bicycle. And there's, there's these different steps in learning to delight in this activity. First of all, you have to learn that the activity is possible at all. So if you've never heard of a bicycle, never seen one ride, anyone ride before, never had an opportunity to try it yourself, then you can't learn to delight in it. So you, you first become aware of this possibility. Then you begin to try it out. And if you've watched a kid learn how to read a, bic read a bicycle, learn how to ride a bicycle, <laughs> Um, then you've seen some of that joy and some of that delight. It's this new thing, and, and it's exciting, and it's faster than you've ever gone under your own power before. And, um, and it's a skill, and we all like learning new things and mastering new activities. And all of the, it's, a, it's a good thing that all of this is true, because what a child does a lot of the time when they're learning to ride a bicycle is fall. And if it wasn't for that joy and that delight, they may not get up and keep trying, but they do. Right? And it's amazing, and you, you have this newfound freedom. And you have this new activity that you, you do really take a joy in, but it doesn't last. And so you enter the third phase of developing joy and delight in an activity, which is disillusionment, or the loss of the initial joy. And this happens to kids too. And if you've raised children or if you remember learning how to ride a bike yourself, you can probably think about that transition that took place between the bike being something that was just fun and you just did it for its own sake to the bike being a tool and a means to an end. And you may or may not have continued riding very often. 
if it was necessary for life, maybe you rode your bike to school or to a summer job or something like that, then you'd keep riding it. But otherwise, it kind of became one more activity that you knew how to do and did or didn't do as was needed. I experienced the same thing learning how to drive. I grew up in Alberta, and they gave us our learner's licenses when we were 14. Can you imagine? <laughs> and uh, for about a year, I wanted to drive everywhere. I probably stopped running errands with my parents when they started letting me stay home alone, so like 12 or 13 or something. But suddenly, anytime either of my parents was going anywhere, I wanted to go with them. But not because of the whatever it was they were doing, but so that I could drive, right? But eventually, the joy of that wears out. And now driving is just a thing you do. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that loss of the initial joy where the thing that was really exciting is now just another skill, activity, whatever? This is where Lewis writes about the kind of the fourth stage, which is a settled or renewed joy. And some of the things that he talks about here I think are really important. And he's developing this analogy to talk about our walk with God. The settled or renewed joy comes when you come back to an activity for its own sake to, I want to say, learn it anew. You're not learning the activity again, but you're learning to enjoy it again. And it's of a completely different character than the first joy. The first joy is new, and it's adrenaline, and it's exciting. The second joy, it's why he calls it settled, is a quiet joy. It's where something becomes a thing you do because you like it. And it doesn't have to be an adrenaline rush. And it doesn't have to be like, woo-woo all the time. It can just be a good thing that fits well with your life and that leaves you refreshed. Now, not everybody comes back to the second joy of riding a bicycle. And that's okay. Most of us only come back to the second joy in a limited number of activities in our lives. And that's all right. But when it comes to faith, most of us do one of two things. We settle with the disillusionment and we just, you know what, the first joy is gone and that's just the way it is. Or worse, we try to get the first joy back. We try to go back to where we started as if somehow losing that was a mistake or a failure or something had gone wrong because I don't feel like I did early in my journey. Um, but you don't. You're not supposed to. It's supposed to be something different. Another great analogy for me is with hiking. When I start off a hike, I'm usually really excited because I've been thinking about this hike and I've been planning this hike and it's a new peak and whatever it is. It doesn't take that long, though, before your legs start to get like, okay, <laughs> starting to get tired and you're in the forest, you haven't seen the mountain yet because there's thick trees for the first three hours of your walk, right? And you got to push through that to get to the point where you're like, oh, this is exciting again, to where you're getting to that end and you can see the rise of the final mountain. And you're like, oh, I'm going to make it, right? And that's a very different feeling in a very different sense. And so what C.S. Lewis writes about is that this is what we are called to in our journey with God and that each of those stages is both necessary and normal. So if you're in that middle stage where the first joy is gone, and the second joy hasn't arrived yet. You're not lost. You're not failing. You haven't done anything wrong. You're growing. And you need to keep growing into that place where God, you recognize his, his goodness in many different ways. And you experience his love in many different ways. And you've, you've grown in the 
discipline of thanksgiving, because thanksgiving is a discipline, so that like David, you can say, I've seen you in the sanctuary, right? I know your love is better than life. Even if you're not experiencing it in this moment, you've disciplined yourself to think through the ways in which God has rescued you before and provided for you before and blessed you before. And those things rise up in you a new and different kind of delight in the Lord. Now, practically speaking, let's talk about this journey for just a minute. There's a couple things that I've found really helpful in the last even six months around this journey. Um, One of the things that I've found really helpful is to take something that I already delight in and invite the Lord to be a part of it. So you know I'm going to say that's hiking. (laughs) But there's other things too. Um, Reading is a great delight for me as well. I very much enjoy that. Being with my children and doing different things with them, just just silly things and, uh, and having fun. Yesterday in the afternoon, Christina was having a nap and the kids were a little bored and it was raining outside and so I couldn't just say go play. And so I, I just really quickly whipped up a game for them. Just a random like game for all four of them to play. It started out with like charades and then they had to do this race around the house and just silly little fun things. And they had a blast and I had so much fun watching them. But one of the things I did before I even started was invite the Lord to be a part of it. To just say, God, I want to do something fun with the kids. I think we should plan a game for them. And I want you to be a part of this. And um, it's funny, like, it wasn't like the heavens opened up and God spoke to me and gave me the best, most amazing game ever. Like, I continued to have to do the thinking and the planning. But it was different when you invite the Lord into that, when you ask Him for His presence. The same thing goes on for me when I'm hiking. It's easy for me to just hike, but it's different when I say, Lord, I want to go on this walk with you. I want you to be with me and enjoy this time together. Um, so that's one thing that you can do. Just, just take something you love doing, and for some of us, that's going to be something that we wouldn't usually associate with church at all, like hiking. And for others of us, that might be something that is very closely associated, like music. You know, not that it has to be Christian praise and worship music, It doesn't, but it can be. But either end of the spectrum is fine, as long as it's not sinful. So if you're finding your delight in something that's not right, then there are other issues. (laughs) And inviting the Lord into that kind of activity is not going to end up in it being more fun. It's going to end up in some conviction, and hopefully just that and not something worse. Um, but, But invite the Lord into those things. If you're one of the people here this morning who, as I ask that question, you're thinking like, you know what, I don't even know what that would be. Um, that, that's okay, because we don't live in a culture that really encourages this kind of stuff. Um, then the first step is to, to ask God to help you figure out what it might be, because he wants you to have a joy-filled life. That's a prayer he'll answer. If you come to God and you say, I don't have any delights, I need your help. He'll do that. The whole of creation is made of the overflow of God's love. That's why we exist at all. So if you talk to him about that, he wants to hear it. The other thing I would say in terms of developing in this, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, is to grow in the discipline of thanksgiving. Because part of how we delight in God 
is recognizing how awesome and good he really is. That's what's, again, that's back to that Luke passage. That's what's going on. They see Jesus, and he heals this crippled woman, and he says, of course she should get healed today. Why shouldn't she get healed on the Lord's day? Don't, and basically what he's saying is, don't you know who the Lord is? Like, don't you know that your Father in heaven likes to take care of you? But when you begin to know that, when you begin to know who God is, really know and see it in your own experience, then the doorway to delight is opened. It's the same thing that happens with the people we delight in. And I haven't talked about this very much, but we can delight in people just as we can delight in activities. The people with whom we feel at home. The people that we have fun with right? And part of the journey of getting there in a relationship with another person is getting to know them enough that you recognize like, hey, this is a fun person. This is a person I get along with. This is a person I'm safe with. This is a person that I can share with because they're on my side, right? And you need to learn those same things about God. So those are some starting points for you. And I'll leave those for wherever you're at. And I invite you to take a couple minutes now to just pray over this, wherever you're at. So if you don't know what's a delight in your life, take a few minutes to talk to God about that. If you do know what's delightful in your life, take a few minutes to invite God into it and plan out your next one. Um, Hopefully I'm not messing anything up for anyone where I'm saying you get to do something you delight in and your spouse is sitting next to you saying you don't have time for that. However you can, make time realistically, probably in the next week before kids go back to school. Um, But but actually plan that out and invite God into that. And then if both of those things are either done or you feel like what you're being called to is to give thanks, then take a few minutes right now to give thanks to the Lord for the things he's done. I'm going to call the worship team up, but I'm going to ask you guys to just, I don't know what your last song is, but if it could just be quiet because, and, and if the rest of us can take this time to pray, um, and then I'll leave it to you guys to transition however you want to out of that. Um, into the conclusion of our service. And let me begin this time of prayer in praying over you. And then you just, I'm not going to say amen because you're going to keep praying. Lord God, we come to you now, you who are a God of delight, because we want to seek to delight in you. Lead us in that now.